Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 13. Carthage, Her City, Her People, and Her Soul. First things first, I hope you all had a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Second, I'm afraid my fears were justified, and the map image did not display in the notes to the last episode. Although my grand reveal has been blown, I posted a link to the map in the description of last episode, as well as this one. If for some reason it doesn't work this time, don't panic. Rest assured, I am completely dedicated to getting you the geographical knowledge I know you crave. With that out of the way, let's get on to the good stuff. Last time, we concluded with Agathocles and the end of the Third Sicilian War. After several desperate struggles both within and without the city, Carthage had finally driven her daring Greek enemy from her shores and had established a firm peace with Syracuse, restoring things to the status quo. Now, she could turn to repairing the burned fields and ruined cities left behind in Agathocles' wake. While we leave Carthage to mend her losses, the end of the Sicilian Wars affords us a rare opportunity to pause in the narrative to take a look around us before we move rapidly into the coming confrontations with the rising power of Rome. In the decades following the Third Sicilian War, Carthage arguably reached the height of her power and prestige. Her cities, filled with the wealth and splendor of every good thing the Mediterranean world could offer and bustling with a sophisticated, cosmopolitan population, gave her a strong claim to being the Queen of the Mediterranean, with the capital of Carthage as her crown jewel. Today, we will focus in on the internal aspects of Carthage, examining the city, the people, and the culture as they looked from approximately 300 BC to 278 BC. Next episode, we will zoom out to take in what was going on in the Mediterranean world as a whole, both in the Carthaginian hegemony and the other powers such as Rome she would come in conflict with. I plan to use the map of the Mediterranean as the foundation of the next episode, so hopefully the technical glitches will be ironed out by that point. We will start off with a brief tour of the city of Carthage as she looked in the early 200s BC. Situated on the northernmost tip of North Africa, smack dab in the center of the Mediterranean, the city of Carthage had swelled from the small group of Tyrian nobles from Dido's days into a booming metropolis. If the links are working properly this time, there should be a link to an overhead map of the city of Carthage in the description. I did not create this map. All credit goes to Livius.org. From the beginning, this new tire centered on the rocky hill known as the Bursa a name which derives either from the oxhide story with Dido or from the Phoenician word for fortress. 
The Bursa served as the center of Carthage's economic and religious life, with the temples, markets, and government buildings situated around the foot of the hill. On top of the Bursa itself stood the citadel of Carthage, a massive stronghold built of limestone completely encircled by two miles of thick walls. Houses and dwellings were built in a conical fashion around the Bursa Hill, similar to a large beehive, and some of these houses reached six stories in height. Between the Bursa and the harbor was the Agora, or market. Large open plazas were likely surrounded by high public buildings. Remember that during Bomakar's rebellion, the citizens of Carthage rained down missiles from the tall buildings surrounding the marketplace. Below these buildings were public porticos, and under these arched colonnades, public banquets could be given by wealthy citizens seeking to ingratiate people to their cause. Within the open spaces in between, riches from the entire Mediterranean would flow from the merchant harbor into the city and a traveler's eye would be greeted with the myriad colors of rich purple and red textiles, the black and orange of fine Greek pottery, the ruddy hides of strong and supple leatherwork, the fresh green, red, and purple tints of piles of fresh fruits and vegetables, the glint of metal razors, tools, and mirrors, the blue-green shimmer of glass bottles, and the grim images of finely carved idols. Besides the sights, the marketplace will be filled with the deafening noise from the advertisements of the merchants, the haggling of customers over prices, the bleeding and lowing of animals, the cries and screams of children, the rumbling of cargo, and a host of other sounds. Finally, the mingled smells of human sweat, fresh vegetables, animal filth, sweltering workshops, and fragrant incense will be coupled with all this tumult, making the market a very dirty and very exciting place. Yet the marketplace served as more than merely a place to exchange goods. Public squares and plazas in the market served as the rallying place for the citizens where they could formally assemble on great occasions, such as pressing government decisions or to celebrate major festivals. With the market being so near to the Senate chambers, it is also likely that the General Assembly, the main body of free Carthaginian citizens, could make their will felt on their leaders from time to time. In addition to serving a legislative and executive role, these plazas also likely functioned as open-air courtrooms for the two reigning suffetes, the Tribunal of 104, and a host of lesser judges to mete out justice, continuing the ancient Middle Eastern tradition of open-air courtrooms. Next to the market stood the main temple complexes of the city. Although there were many shrines and temples throughout the city, the temple complexes of Baal Hamon and Tanit were the most famous in antiquity. The temple of Baal Hamon in particular built with large, irregular blocks of limestone, blended Greek and Phoenician architectural styles, and stood as a massive reminder of both the cosmopolitan nature of the city 
as well as the seriousness of Carthage's religious devotion. It was in this temple that Hanno the Navigator placed the skins of the gorilla he had killed on his journey in the Atlantic. Vast courtyards and colonnades surrounded the temples, allowing for idlers, gossips, and pious citizens to gather to discuss the business of the day. Additionally, a large academy dedicated to training the elites and priests was likely connected to the temple of Baal Hamon. Besides these temples, along the harbor walls lay the Carthaginian Tophet. This area, likely considered sacred due to being the fabled spot where Dido's ships landed, and probably also where she met her end in the sacrificial pyre, contained shrines and altars which held the remains of the Carthaginian sacrifices. Here, after the bloody service within the temple, the burned bodies of babies or animals would be buried in urns as an offering to Baal Hamon and to Nit. In contrast to the much richer decorations of the temple complexes, the Tophet remained unadorned throughout the centuries, a simple and grim place filled with stone, urns, and bones. Since I have already covered the harbor complex, the walls, and the industrial workshops of Carthage in previous episodes, we will next move on to the northernmost portion of the city. This large area, called the Megara, was a mixture between rural gardens and dwellings. Most dwellings will be built of stone or unbaked brick. Many of the simpler houses would have square or rectangular rooms with a vaulted or flat whitewash roof with a balcony. Most would have few openings onto the street, and unlike the Romans, few had central open-air courtyards, most of the courtyards being placed in the corners of the building. The walls of the homes would be whitewashed thickly with lime to hide the cheap materials used in their construction, while the interior walls were often stuccoed or painted for decoration. Being in such an arid climate and having so large a population, the Carthaginians early on had placed large cisterns and water tanks to catch rainwater to supply their needs. Some of these would be connected to the houses, while larger public water tanks would be situated along the streets. As we would expect, the homes of the wealthy were built on a grander scale, with central interior courtyards complete with a bathing pool surrounded by a portico. Bathrooms lined with waterproof cement and wash basins would be a standard feature of such homes. Floors would be covered with a very fine red cement into which chips of marble would be inset, and doubtless every kind of rich and fragrant plant so precious to the agriculturally-minded Carthaginians, would add natural decoration and grace to their homes. But what were the people like who lived in these homes, you ask? Archaeology has revealed that most of the people were slender and wiry in build rather than broad, but records show that they were tough 
and capable of great feats of physical endurance, traits which stood them in good stead as sea captains in the Atlantic or caravan traders crossing the Sahara Desert. Most appear to have been descended from North African forebears, but in general they seem to have been lighter toned than the darker Libyans, who are ancestors of the modern-day Berbers. Except for the priests, who were clean-shaven, most men wore beards, both long curled beards and shorter trim beards. Many had tight, curly hair that they took particular care of. The women typically wore their hair very long and took great pride in its length. Later, they would adopt more fanciful Greek hairstyles. Carthaginian dress was much more Middle Eastern in look and differed starkly from that of the Romans and the Greeks. Men typically wore a long straight woolen robe with sleeves, usually without a belt, or a long robe of muslin over which other shorter and thicker materials were progressively layered. Cloaks would sometimes be worn by making a sort of shawl or robe over the shoulders but typically long robes alone sufficed as protection against both heat and cold. The Carthaginians were very partial to head coverings, and the men wore conical felt hats, very much like a fez, or veils which resembled turbans. Sandals or boots would complete their outfit. We know very little of the women's dress, but evidence from Stele showed that their dress was much less conservative and much more in step with the times, so to speak, than the men's. Many women would wear the latest Greek fashions, which would typically be based around a long pleated robe, probably richly embroidered or decorated, gathered at the waist by a high belt. A head veil and sometimes a cloak was also worn. Unlike the more austere Greeks, both Carthaginian men and women loved jewelry to an almost gaudy extent, and both sexes wore earrings, diadems, spiral bracelets, and even thick nose rings. The women often wore massive gold anklets, and beautiful necklaces have been found, intricately wrought with many precious stones, as well as amulets and charms. Seals and signet rings were richly adorned to exhibit the owner's social status, as well as to perform their normal function. Poorer families who could not afford gold jewelry strung together glass beads, shells, bone, and terracotta figurines as substitute finery. The Carthaginian dress offers an interesting example of the clash between their beliefs and culture and that of their Greek and Roman neighbors. Curiously enough, Carthaginian clothes were one of the reasons why the Greeks labeled them as barbarians, and both the Greeks and the Romans violently condemned the long-seamed robe with sleeves that most Carthaginians wore. Whereas the Greeks valued the human body as the pinnacle of beauty, and sought to render every anatomical feature as lifelike as possible, the Carthaginians followed the Middle Eastern tradition of rejection of the bodily form. Thus, 
While the Greeks often displayed their heroes and heroines naked, emphasizing their beauty and strength, the Carthaginians cared more for cultivating respect for their person by displaying their dignity and wealth. The Carthaginian male dress was intended not to emphasize the muscular symmetry so important to the Greeks, but rather to show off a more portly and exuberant figure, whose rich dark beard and hair, luxurious robes, and dazzling ornaments displayed his opulence for all the world to see. From what we know of the female dress, it seems that the Carthaginian women were less on board with this mentality than the men, and more form-fitting Greek fashions seemed to be the norm. But somehow, I doubt there were many complaints. Obviously, the fullest and richest Carthaginian garb could only be available to the wealthy aristocratic nobles. From its inception back in Tyre, Carthage had been a society dominated by nobility, and throughout its history, this strong trend towards oligarchy continued. Although a republic with what may roughly be called three distinct branches of government, with the Safites, the Senate, and the Tribunal of 104, all three branches were dominated by the aristocracy. Aristotle states that birth and wealth played a central role in the election to powerful positions, and many offices seem to have been for sale. The elders of Carthage, or Senate, was made up of several hundred men distinguished for both their wealth and high rank. Within this, real power was wielded by a council of thirty, a group of thirty individuals who dominated the other members. The Senate also supplied the judges for the Tribunal of 104. Although in theory any man might be eligible to be elected as an executive suffete, in reality, only established members of the aristocracy were elected. In contrast to the Romans, who periodically elected exceptional men from lowly plebeian families to their equivalent office of consul. After the 400s BC, the election of generals to the army was separated from the civil office of the Safites, but it seems that noblemen typically filled these posts as well. Thus, save for a brief period of democratic feeling after the Second Punic War, Carthage remained an oligarchic republic dominated by the wealthy and well-born. Not that the ordinary citizens seemed discontented on the whole with this arrangement. Carthaginian culture was by nature very conservative and resistant to change, and it was not until late in her history that the average Carthaginian began to clamor for reform, and even then it was under the leadership of their legendary commander, Hannibal. As we have seen, the citizens rallied to the Republic's aid when Balmacar attempted to seize power, and they willingly enrolled in the city legions to defend Carthage from invaders such as Agathocles. Besides patriotic feelings of devotion to their city, 
The common man benefited from lavish and prodigal displays of generosity from the nobles, such as public banquets, which likely made the nobility very popular. There are also indications that the wealth and benefits from the colonies and settlements were shared in part with the humbler citizens. The fact that the average Carthaginian was exempt from military service likely contributed to their contentedness with the status quo, since citizen soldiers in the Greek and Roman world often gave the commoners a sense of solidarity and unity that allowed for popular movements. All these factors, coupled with a serious and often brutal justice system, made the Carthaginian state remarkably stable and resistant to any efforts of reform. Indeed, the government established after the Battle of Hemera in 480 BC in essence remained in effect until Carthage's ultimate demise over three centuries later. The conservative nature of Carthaginian culture also spilled over into its priesthood. The position of high priest of the Carthaginian gods was passed from father to son in certain noble families, some of which dated back to the foundation of the city. A strict hierarchy, beginning with the high priest downwards, was enforced, and the high priest wielded considerable power and influence within the city. Besides the awe inspired by their status as chief minister of a certain god, the high priest controlled the massive temples which employed large numbers of people as scribes, musicians, barbers, and butchers. The temples also served as steady consumers of Carthaginian wares and products. Depending on the status of the priest or priestess, different rites would have to be observed. Thus, some priests were forbidden to marry or even to see the other sex, while others, especially members of the high nobility, were exempt from these requirements and allowed to live a very normal life when not attending to their priestly duties. As I mentioned before, most priests were clean-shaven and had shaved heads with a tuft of hair, and they wore long white linen robes with few adornments. Besides the priests, the aristocracy made up the other part of the upper echelon of Carthaginian society. These nobles derived their wealth from both trade overseas and agriculture at home, allowing for both diversification and stability in their income. Although we do not know how invested the everyday noble was in trade, we know that the Carthaginian landowners were very active in the day-to-day -day farming operations of their estates. The Carthaginian agriculturist Mago advised that the man who acquires an estate must sell his house lest he prefer to live in the town rather than in the country. Anyone who prefers to live in a town has no need of an estate in the country. Many Carthaginian nobles seem to have taken Mago's words to heart, and they present a picture of men who diligently supervise their farms and slaves to ensure the maximum output at harvest. Seeing how hands-on the aristocrats were in this regard, 
it would be surprising if they did not also take a very involved role with their trading operations as well. The humbler citizen seems to have lived a relatively simple life, working at his respective trade or craft with few possessions. Most of the poorer homes had little furniture and few items, save terracotta lamps for lighting and large clay jars which served as storage containers for food, water, and even clothes. Obviously, depending on his trade and skills, a citizen could become wealthy over time and make a better life for himself and his family. Some, doubtless, who through ingenuity and hard work became very rich, could also win positions in the government or even the Senate, since wealth was the primary indicator of social status. Trade could also be a road to prosperity, especially since the Carthaginian government strongly supported its merchants' interests, both at home and abroad, and many lower-class Carthaginians likely raised their status through diligent and savvy entrepreneurship overseas. For those who are unable to reach such heights, archaeological evidence indicates that poorer citizens and even slaves of the city enjoyed a standard of living far higher than that of their rural counterparts, having access to amenities such as public feasts, public baths, and public sewers that to some extent alleviated their squalid existence. The citizens would have spoken Punic, which is a derivative of the Phoenician language, but likely a fair amount of the population would understand or speak Greek as well. The large class of foreigners who always resided in the city, whether mercenaries from Spain and Gaul or traders from Italy and Greece, would also likely speak Punic in their daily lives. Unlike their Middle Eastern counterparts, Carthaginian families were typically monogamous, and, perhaps in memory of their heroic founding queen, Dido, noble women often received extensive educations and wielded considerable political influence. Now that we have a picture of what the average Carthaginian looked like, the question is, what was the spirit or soul which animated him? The culture of Carthage, or soul, if you will, was one dominated by a conservative and ritualistic view of life. From their garments to their religion, the Carthaginian was nearly always resistant to change and dedicated to preserving the status quo. As you may have noticed during the past episodes, the history of Carthage is really a history of her overseas dealings with other peoples, such as the Greeks and the Romans, rather than an internal history of struggles and tumults within Carthage herself. Part of this is likely due to the fact that no histories written by the Carthaginians have survived, but in general, it can probably be attributed to the conservative nature of the Carthaginians themselves. When contrasted with the early history of Rome, with its ousting of kings and class struggles between patrician and plebeian, the formative history of Carthage comes off as remarkably consistent. 
For so long, this was a great strength to her society. Uprooted from the Middle Eastern world and placed amid hostile and warring tribes, with no hope of aid from home, the Carthaginians refused to assimilate wholly into the surrounding peoples, digging their heels in culturally and capitalizing on their economic and mercantile talents to expand their reach. Coupled with a staid and formal manner inherited from the East, it is no wonder that the more animated and boisterous Greeks and Romans viewed them as an alien and foreign world. The Greeks and Romans often accused the Carthaginians of being servile or groveling towards those in power, since they did not understand this sense of over-refined politeness. And later in the Punic Wars, when Carthaginian senators prostrated themselves and kissed the feet of Roman commanders at peace conferences, the Romans clearly felt embarrassed and irritated by this fawning. However, ever the opportunists, the Romans themselves adopted a few Punic courtesies from the Carthaginian tradition, such as the greeting Ave, which comes from a Punic word. This inherently conservative nature and submissive attitude to authority was heightened when it came to Carthaginian worship. The Carthaginians viewed Baal Hamon and Tanit with awe, not unmixed with fear, and the Carthaginians lived with constant concern to adhere to ritualistic sacrifices and ceremonies, especially the ultimate form of sacrifice, that of their children, to please their gods. This intense devotion to the service of Baal Hamon meant that the Carthaginian outlook on life was mystical, with the gods directing all affairs and events, as opposed to the more mechanically-minded Greeks, who viewed the universe as governed by rational laws which man could understand and harness to his own will. The intense seriousness and rigid formality of their beliefs made the Carthaginians a rather unartistic bunch, despite their marked talent for industry, trade, and engineering. Though they made beautiful goods along with their cheaper mass-produced products, the Carthaginians preferred to copy the creative fashions of the Greeks and model most of their styles on copies of Greek templates. They also preferred to copy the Greeks when it came to architecture, Within Carthage herself, there were no theaters or public games. The only form of public entertainment was either religious festivals or public feasts, both of which the lively Greeks looked down on as incredibly dull affairs. With the Carthaginians so focused on successful commerce, the arts, except perhaps for music, were valued less highly than the more practical accomplishments in trade. Although we have found several beautiful Carthaginian artifacts, they rarely showed the uniqueness or originality of similar Greek works. This lack of creativity was due not to a lack of skill or expertise in Carthaginian craftsmen, but rather to a lack of interest in the beautiful and a preference for commercial endeavors. Although tainted by the Greeks' distaste for Carthage, Plutarch's falling summation 
of the Carthaginians as a people might not be an inaccurate description on the whole. The Carthaginians are a hard and gloomy people, submissive to their rulers and harsh to their subjects, running to extremes of cowardice in times of fear and of cruelty in times of anger. They keep obstinately to their decisions, are austere, and care little for amusement or the graces of life. If one word could sum up the Carthaginian culture, it would be this, money. Everything in their society was devoted to accumulating more and more wealth. The government's function was to keep order within the city and colonies so trade could flourish. Diplomacy was used to establish trade deals and bargain for better commercial positions overseas. War was seen as business by other means, to be handled by foreign professionals hired and paid for out of the rich coffers of the state. Even the Carthaginian hegemony, flexible due to its unique mixture of closely held colonies and a loose confederation of allies, resulted from her desire to trade, not to conquer. Besides reverence for Baal, Hamon, and Tanit, the overriding goal of a Carthaginian's life was, through his wits, foresight, and sweat, to make himself the richest man around. As the centuries passed by, fewer and fewer Carthaginians would rise above this almost fanatical obsession with money to grasp the bigger picture of the world around them. But those who, with fiery spirit and patriotic fervor, sought to save Dido's city from its ultimate ruin, would give the world one of the greatest men history would ever see. Such would be a brief picture of Carthage and her citizens in the decades following Agathocles. As a people, they were Middle Eastern in appearance, clothed in long, fine robes, and living in decorated, whitewashed houses. Although capable of great building projects and engineering feats, such as their innovative harbor and their triple walls, the Carthaginians were not a creative or artistic people, preferring to copy or modify Greek models and fashions with their own Phoenician traditions. Yet, they proved themselves to be remarkably resourceful, resilient, and enterprising, taking a barren piece of rocky land and transforming it into a verdant landscape with their agricultural ingenuity, even as they enriched their capital with the profits of their daring trade ventures. Though they did not regularly serve in the armed forces, their willingness to fight when called upon and the bravery they demonstrated show that the Carthaginians were no cowards, and their feats of endurance, from Hanno the Navigator's voyages in the Atlantic to their trade across the Sahara to the famous crossing over the Alps, proved them to be both a hard-working and hardy people. But though willing to fight, the normal Carthaginian way was commercial rather than military, and their diplomacy foreign policy, and armed forces were all subservient to their goal of acquiring more wealth and all the fine material things life could offer.
fiercely conservative in their traditions and institutions, jealous of other foreign powers, and resistant to change, Carthage and her citizens stood as a stark and startling presence to the Greek and Roman world surrounding her. For all its material triumphs and the heroic men and women who came from it, the Carthaginian civilization was marred by its brutal devotion to child sacrifice, its love of gain, and the heavy burdens it placed on its tributaries and citizens. Ironically, in the end, it would be Carthage's devotion to the status quo and her dogged resistance to change which would cause her to squander the heroic efforts made to save her and which would ultimately lead to her downfall. But where we are today, Carthage's fall is a long way off and her fiercest struggles have yet to come. I hope that this brief overview has given you at least a glimpse of what life was like in ancient Carthage. More than this, I hope that it gives a picture of the spirit and soul of Carthage, the worldview which animated her citizens and leaders to live how they did. Next time, we will zoom back from Carthage and take a look at the civilizations that surrounded her during this time. Until then, Happy New Year. Take care and read more history.